I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. The dispossession is part of it. But, you know, there was this really fascinating study out of India about um, political violence. And so what ha- the, the number one thing for political violence in India is when they, they did it with the visa, car- with, with, with expenditure records. So as Muslims, the marginalized group, get more money to spend compared to Hindus, that's when the violence starts, right? And, the, the, and they, this can that's be seen so everywhere. Well, exactly. Because like what's actually happening is in America, you have, you know, black people and, and Latino people moving up and you have economically, politically, America is about to become a majority minority country by 2040. And as that happens, the, the overclass essentially reacts with violence. And you, you can see that everywhere. You can see that in India. You can see it all over Africa. You can see it in Asia. You can see it in the Middle East, certainly. So you know, that that is to me, if you're asking what the deeper process is underway, the psychological process that that would be right at the top of the list. In fact, when they, there's an amazing study that came out about the January 6th insurrectionists and they own, like only a very about 20 percent of them were from the militias. But the, the huge overwhelming factor was that they all came from counties where exactly that thing had happened, where exactly that phenomenon. I, I saw that where they, they came from counties that had been becoming more diverse uh, relatively recently. And you know, it's amazing because it's not them becoming poor, right? It's not, it's not like, it's not like them becoming, it's not them losing. It's the people below them gaining in relation to them that they, that causes the violence, which is even worse. I mean, like it's even darker. This week on the Forward Podcast, the author of The Next Civil War, Stephen Marsh joins me with his vision of what's to come in the US. Is a breakup inevitable? This week on Forward. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Forward Podcast, author of The Next Civil War, which I have in my hot little hands, Stephen Marsh. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. Ah, It's great to have you. So first, what the heck prompted you to write this very, very dramatic book, which I enjoyed a great deal? Uh, And two, how has the reception been since you've been out there touring and promoting? Well, the reception's been great. I'll answer your second question first. The reception's been great. I mean, it's been a bit odd because I've sort of been on all kinds of media, like left-wing media, right-wing media, and they, they have such, they're so different, and they have such different takes on this stuff, and I mean, sometimes it's, like, it, it really is, like, coming from Canada, it's sort of like, like, at one point, one of the, the right-wing groups asked me, like, would a civil war even be that bad a thing, and I was like, 
uh, yeah, you know, like South Carolina lost 25% of its male population, like 2.5% of the American population died in the first civil war. Civil war is the wor- the worst thing that can happen to a country. I think it's probably worse than You're, you're not occupation. praising the possibility of a civil war in <laughs> no. this book. <laughs> well, it never occurred to me. I mean, it literally never occurred to me that someone would suggest that a civil war might be a good thing. Um, but, you know, so uh, I wrote the book as a warning. Right. About what about how dangerous civil wars are and how close the United States was. And I mean, the real inspiration for it was I was at I was I was sent by a Canadian magazine to cover the Trump inauguration. What the heck do Canadians think is going on with us? <laughs> they, they were like, you have to go, you have to go, go tell us what's going on. You know, I was standing on top of a limousine at one point and then the limousine was lit on fire. There was also like people handing out joints. But then it was that patchwork Washington like it's illegal on federal land. So it's like, don't, you, you know, here the joints are free over there. You could go to jail for them. Like it was, there was quite a lot of chaos. And then in the middle of the night, like two, three in the morning, uh, a fellow journalist from Canada called me and said, we're going to a party. And uh, I said, okay, if he told me to, I was going to, it was in Georgetown. And it was like a low level guy at the USDA. And, you know, the kind of guy who's responsible for wheat in 2050 or whatever the you know the bureaucrats that keep us all alive and he'd taken all the presidential photos with him and he was and he'd taken his chair from the office and i said you know what what's going on and he said no one came to replace me today like we turned off the lights at the u.s the u.s department of agriculture today and i was like okay this is this is very serious like uh it's time to really go in deep over the next few, like all other projects are going to be put on hold we're just going to look at what what is going wrong in America and how badly it's going wrong. And the book is really the answer to that question, which is, you know, unfortunately pretty bad. So this was a political appointee who just went home and uh, everyone uh, just shrugged. Well, ordinarily, like, you know, if ordinarily for every other president that's ever been elected in history, that team would have been established two years ago, right? Like they would have known who would have taken that job like a, a million years earlier. Right. And somebody would have come and taken over their papers and that would have been it. And like, unlike, you know, Canada or Britain or other parliamentary democracies where there's a really stable civil service that in effect runs the country and the politicians kind of come and try and move that ship around a bit. Like it was like, there's no one there. Right. And that, that really, and you know, of course, like that became really clear during the Trump years with the, with the state department, especially where I think in the end, only about a third of positions were ever even filled. Yeah, they were they were trying to starve the State Department for whatever reason. It, it was a very odd approach to diplomacy. So this is January 2017, right? The inauguration. That's right. Yeah. And so you write the article about the inauguration, and you go back to your editors or you know or whomever and say, "Hey guys, I think the U.S. is heading towards deep shit." approaching, and I want to write. Uh, did it start out as a book? Was it articles? Like what was the next? It was step? an article. It was an article, um, and they said, uh, I said, I want to write about this. I think a civil war is coming. Well, I'd actually went, I did some research first. Like I went to a gun show in Tulsa, and then I went to Ohio for The Guardian and, and hung out with some Oath Keepers, and I was interviewing Nazis, and I was interviewing far-right people, hard-right people, and you know, just meeting them. And like trying to get a, a feel from the ground of what this is like, you know, what what the reality is here. Were, were they welcoming to the Canadian journalists? Were they into it, or did you feel? Oh, unsafe? if you look like me, they're if you look like me, they're the sweetest guys in the world. I mean, they're like there's it's definitely uh, 
you know, it, like I, I get along very well with uh, with white supremacists and with uh, with 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 hard right people. They're they're perfectly pleasant, and I mean that makes them much scarier, right? Like they're not they're, these are not people with born to lose tattooed on their chest. These are like teachers and you know people who run small businesses and like and 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 they just happen to like walking around armed and don't believe in the validity of the federal authority right and i I think it's also like also they're much more educated than i would have believed like you know you go and it's very scary when you go to talk to someone and they're like uh, and you're like well how are you going to build this white ethno state in the pacific northwest and they're like oh well we'll model it on japan's constitution and they have a whole system for it and they have law degrees and they know they know what they're doing so that also scared me and then i so then i did that sort of ground grounding research and then i really began to look into the models the hyperpartisanship models the environmental models the uh you know the, the research which is at a really high point right now i mean i like i will say like the the book one of the um, reasons you can write a book like this is because the the modeling for a lot of these things has gotten to the point where it's just excellent because of the quality of the data. Um, and then I went to my editors and said, yeah, I think a civil war is coming. I'd like to write about it. And they said, you've got to be out of your mind. Yeah, there's no way that's going to happen. And I said, really, I think they said you're being totally alarmist. I, I beg said, to differ, editor. <laughs> like, I, I think right. it's coming. Like, I was, yeah, I, I was like, look, I mean, let me write it and then we'll we'll go from there. Um, and then that, that's what, that's what happened. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, It is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Among the modeling and research that you dug into was Peter Turchin's model among them, where he has this political stress index uh, he's out of the University of Connecticut, I believe, and uh, it, it shows for him in their model, which includes a lot of different factors, including lack of opportunity for educated elites, uh, nutrition, like a, a bunch of different factors go into it. But his study showed political stress to be at literally civil war levels, which is one of the reasons yeah. why I take this uh, possibility very seriously. 
Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the fact that there's like Barbara Walters books that uses a completely separate methodology from mine, but comes to the exact same conclusions. I mean, that's a bit of a warning, right? Like you could, I, I, I didn't go through that model, although I was familiar with it. I went through PRIO, the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, because I, I felt they had a sort of, um, like a slightly more, uh, well, I wouldn't, it would be fair to say more global, but like they, they were, they were not in America. Right. And part of the thing that I wanted was to get like perspectives outside of America on America, because I find like the debate in America is so toxic that it kind of consumes like everyone gets consumed within it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he, he that, that's an that's excellent research, though. Um, but, you know, the 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 models that I used um, are more specifically tied to inequality. Like and the, and those uh, vertical inequality and horizontal inequality, both which are you know literally at levels that the republic has never seen before. Like there's never been high higher inequality back in back in 1776. There was not this level of inequality. Well, yeah, we're in the new strange gilded age, uh, uh, supercharged by uh, technology uh, and capitalism in, in different ways. So when you talk about a horizontal inequality versus vertical inequality. Explain. I, I have a sense that vertical inequality is the inequality that most people think of. Well, inequality is like they're high level. There are, so there are some people who are very rich and there are some people who are very poor. Um, America, of course, is the real extreme example of this globally where uh, you have you have you, like I, I mean, it, it's just it's off the charts. Like it's the Gini coefficient is just so so crazy in the United States that it's, it basically breaks all the models. A horizontal inequality is inequality between groups. So inequality between ethnic groups, between different identifiable between different regions, uh, between different identifiable groups, and both are very high in, in the in the United States. Um, and both you know are predictors of civil war. I mean. You know, like some people ask me, what are the most common things that lead into it? Um, you know, the the anocracy is probably the biggest one, but I don't really like to think of it that way because to me, uh, the, it's a complex cascading system. It's something where everything feeds into itself, and that's why you get such turbulence, right? Like that, that's why the unimaginable keeps happening all the time. Like why it's like you just can't believe something happened because. It, it, I think it, a lot of Americans a, have had that sense. It's like, oh, that that like yeah. I can't believe that's happening. But now it's almost commonplace. Um, so you just used a term, anocracy. Uh, can can you explain? Like societies that are at ripe for civil war and for political violence generally are not democracies or um, autocracies. Those are both very stable. Like there's there's not going to be a revolution in Russia. It's an autocracy. Um, there's not going to be a revolution in Canada, God willing, although God knows we've come close twice to losing the country in my lifetime. But uh, and there was martial law declared just before I was born. But, um, you know, those those kind of societies tend not to have lots of political violence. It's where you're in this in between space. The gray area, like the fake the democracy, the democracy that yeah. no one has actual faith in. Exactly. And that I mean, America is that now, I think. And I um, agree. It is. Yeah, we, we, well, we very much yes, resemble a fake the, democracy for reasons that, you know, like I'm I, I'm very animated about. I, I And I think like one of the things about you is that the rights always kind of made that argument. Like the, the right has always sort of said, like, they're not legitimate. But now it's people on the left and people with data and people with not emotions, but out of reason saying, uh, you know, this is not a functioning system anymore. 
some of the reasons why I think America has become a fake democracy is that you have this two-party system that is very rigidly enforced. And now 83 to 90% of congressional races are gerrymandered to be safely blue or safely red so that there's no real uncertainty around which party is going to emerge from that seat victorious to the extent that any uncertainty exists is in the primary, which ends up distorting incentives in various ways. But it, it does mean that if you're in the minority party in 90% of the country, you might as well just not vote or sit it out. Um, and so when people go and exhort you to be like, oh, get involved, do this, it's like we've actually set it up so that you can have no meaningful impact on, 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 on um, this race, but we're going to inflame you. We're going to make you mad in, in, in various ways. Um, so the, this system, I, I think, is very, very discouraging to uh, many, many Americans. Uh, it's not a genuine democracy in that if you did have uh, like an independent actor or party or candidate, the odds of them actually being able to make headway are vanishingly low because you would need $10 million to run a statewide campaign, like what independent could have that? Uh, you know, if you're an ordinary citizen, you're uh, on the outside looking in. So you get told, look, you have to play within these parties, which, by the way, again, um, you know, like uh, aren't really open unto themselves. You have this strange media landscape that's hyper polarized and yep. uh, gutted at the local level. So here's so those are some of the things I, I think about when I think fake democracy, which is a different yeah. argument than the stuff that you've heard from, let's say, uh, the, the right in times past. No, that's true. I mean, to me as an outsider, like the 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 inherent fairness of any electoral system is kind of not really relevant because what matters is that people feel the system to be legitimate. I mean, that's the basis of peaceful government. Like, like we have a first past the post system here, which, you know, has a definite, you could like some, sometimes the majority party wins with 39% of the vote. Right. And everyone's, you know, sort of outraged. But then, you know, th th this is just the well, system. But your, your system is designed that way. I mean, how many political yeah, parties exactly. are active in Canada? Uh, three. Well, more. There's at least four, actually. But um, and, and, you know, sometimes one is like one is currently a minority government with the third party being the kingmaker, really, right now, the NDP. But my, my point really is that that's all fine and good until ordinary people like you can survive all of that until ordinary people start to feel that their system is not representing the popular will. And I mean, the evidence is really becoming clear that 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 is that is happening that ordinary Americans don't feel that their electoral system represents the popular will. And as you like, for all the reasons you just said, that's a perfectly rational uh, point of view to hold. Right. And, it, you know, and the other thing is it's only, it's about to get much worse, you know, like it's about to get much dramatically worse. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... 
I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So you embark on this journey in 2017. You're doing research. And I had the same experience twice, actually, when... I wrote my book, The War on Normal People. I had a thesis around the fact that automation was going to transform the economy in ways that were going to push many Americans to the side. And when I was doing that research, it was much, much more uh, garish and frightening than I'd ever imagined when I started the process. (laughs) I know. It's it's funny, isn't it? Where you're like, oh, yeah. Well, you're like, well, I mean, am I right? And then you go and you're like, oh, it's like as bad as it looks on the surface. It's much worse underneath. I mean, for sure. Yeah, and your your book has a number of snapshots from the future that feel true to life. Uh, that they, they feel like they very well could happen or will happen. Uh, the the first of them I found to be really enthralling or fascinating is what you call the Battle of the Bridge, uh, and it did feel like it, it could be ripped from the headlines. Uh, can you explain the fact pattern and the research you did that led you to use this as an example of a catalyst that could send? Uh, the U.S. towards some kind of uh, political violence. Sure. Well, there there are a lot of right wing groups that um, hate the federal government, and they're quite sizable, but they're also quite chaotic, and they're ideologically chaotic and they're organizationally chaotic. That doesn't mean they're weak. Um, it means that there's just a huge fragmented number of them, and. Like sometimes, and they go back and forth between them. So there's like QAnon people, and then there's Second uh, Second Amendment fundamentalists, and then there's tax, uh, you know, people who don't believe that they should pay any tax, and then there's sovereign citizens, and then there's Sagebrush rebels, which where it's about federal land. So I had to, I wanted to imagine a scenario that would unite them, um, like we saw in Charlottesville, and the figure that seemed to me most dangerous. Um, was the the constitutional sheriffs because they have authority, um, they are elected, um, they are. There's no question that they're a democratic representative, and there's a large group of them who really believe that in the doctrine of interposition, um, even though it's been roundly rejected by the Supreme Court and every other court, um, that the role of a sheriff is to resist federal authority. Um, and they, they kind of love this and they, they, it's a big, it's a big macho scene really is what it is. And so I just imagined the, the right coalescing around a sheriff who suddenly decided to, uh, not to resist the federal authority. And, you know, in that case, the government would have to respond. 
there would be no, there would be, it would not be a, a question where it's like, well, what are we going to, they would have to respond. And then you get into, you know, military, the military planning for what they call full spectrum operations in the homeland and the extreme legal quagmire that would result from trying to occupy an American county. And so the hypothetical you drew, which I thought was really smart, was that the feds want to shut down a bridge uh, for repairs and it would greatly inconvenience the local community because they won't have a bridge for a certain period of time. So the sheriff says, screw that. We're going to keep this bridge open. And so the, the then you wind up with a bunch of uh, anti-government type saying freedom keep the bridge open and the feds having to play the the heavies the bad guys being like no we're going to shut this bridge down now the bridge could have yeah. structural problems but it works today so uh you know the so it, it's not like the bridge is crumbling before everyone's eyes and so for the average person on the ground they're like why are you shutting this bridge down well yeah but i mean like it is a bit like 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 covid Right. Where you have like the experts are on one side and 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 ordinary people don't want to do it because it's extremely annoying. Right. Um, But like there are a lot of bridges in America that no one should be driving over a lot. Um, And the infrastructure is at a really staggeringly, I mean, unacceptable point. Um, But yeah, like, I mean, the reason I took a bridge is because that exact thing happened in the 80s in Arizona. And I just talked to the guy who did it. I mean, with this book, I really tried to stay like, like, uh, it's a work of imagination in a way, like I'm imagining these scenarios. But I I literally made sure that everything could be footnoted. And that there was, there was, there was an analog to all of it. So that, you know, it's, it's, this is not about um, grounded in reality. I'm either happy or unhappy to say. I, I mean, I worked like if there was an example from history that I could take, I just took it. Right. I didn't I didn't mess around. It's just like I will just use what's there and, uh, and 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 go from there. Because also the other thing is you don't need to frighten people like you, we don't have, you don't need to make stuff up to be scary with this stuff. Like, you know, it, like if you tell the basic facts, they're plenty scary enough. Yeah, I agree. So let's play out this scenario as you did in the book, just so people get, have a sense of, as to how this might play out. Um, so right. you have a bunch of far right groups show up on the bridge saying, yeah, like, you know, free country, defend the bridge. The sheriff's a hero and the the, the sheriff's doing interviews on various uh, radio shows uh, and cable TV being lauded. Uh, and then half the country says this play, this guy's a kook. This guy's, uh, you know, not like anti-law enforcement, not actually law enforcement. This interposition thing is garbage. Uh, and then uh, eventually you have the U.S. military encircling this bridge saying, what are we going to do? You have hundreds of activists on the bridge partying all night. You have most reasonable Americans looking at this saying, well, I certainly don't agree with what the heck is going on in that bridge, but I don't know if I agree with shooting and killing the people on the bridge, um, though the people on the bridge are, in this case, heavily armed with, uh, you know, automatic weapons and the rest of it. Um, And so that's the scenario you draw out. And if you're most Americans, you think, well, what you'd want would be a peaceful resolution of this standoff. But if a peaceful resolution is not in the offing and uh, bloodshed does take place, you can very easily imagine uh, the sheriff and others being hailed as martyrs in some quarters. A lot of reasonable Americans looking at it and saying, oh, my gosh, like dozens of people died. Um, uh, you can see the uh, you can imagine the images on social media that would be playing uh, day day and night. Well, you don't. I mean, 
like January 6th happened, those guys are in a prison in Washington and they sing the national anthem every night because they consider themselves political prisoners, right? Like they consider themselves political prisoners. Um, they, and many do as well. So the first thing in the book that I assume, which January 6th, I think showed pretty clearly. And, and that, you wrote this book before January 6th. Though, oh, when, yeah. this, when the book, when the January 6th happens, you're like, oh, wow. I, like, oh, I had you to know, throw in a chapter. I just wrote a chapter, right? Like I'd already written that, but it just happened. So I had to, it's no longer a prediction. Um, so I had to throw out a chapter, but you know, what happened was like immediately within hours, the media narrative diverged, right? Like within hours, uh, you have Rush Limbaugh saying, I I'm glad the men at Concord used guns when they had to. And I'm glad that they, they weren't opposed to revolution. And then you have the left being like, this is an assault on democracy. It, it immediately bifurcates into these media networks. The political people respond to that automatically. I mean, you know, January 6th is horrible, but January 6th happens to a lot of countries, right? Like we had to declare martial law in 1970 in Canada. Uh, you're all European countries have had similar, like this is not something unknown to history. But what is really shocking to me was the members of Congress not showing up to uh, give a minute of silence for the uh, to, for the police officer who was slain on Congress, defending their physical security, like to, like literally fighting for their lives and dying. And they can't, they do not have the collective narrative sensibility to get together to mourn this man. So that that's that's the level of the the narrative divide. Right. Where like it, it just splits. Then, of course, in the in the book, you have a question of, well, the military is really in an impossible position, uh, not tactically like it, it, like uh, uh, the Marines are nobody can go up against the Marines. The Marines are tough. They are not losing to anyone. Never mind a bunch of militiamen who like are, are with AR-15s and so on. Like they they, they would, I, I, I tried to, I talked to many military experts and I was like, well, give me a battle scene. Like give me a scene where there's engagement. And they were like, there's no engagement. We just walk over them. By walk over them, you mean kill them? Yeah. Like, like in terms of an engagement, like it's an NBA team against your local Sunday night pickup game. It is professionals with every attribute in their side technological like they just walk there's no there's no there's nothing to describe like that's what they told me so but th that doesn't really matter because america has learned about counterinsurgency through 70 years of failure like there's no like when you win you still lose right and the the legal nightmare of trying to wage war against people who are your fellow citizens especially in america um because of the because of the nature of the constitution if you were to have U.S. citizens killed on American soil by the armed forces, uh, it, it would be a nightmare and it would inflame tens of millions of Americans. Exactly. Very, very directly. Yeah. And I mean, given that, you know, even an assault on the Capitol gets split into factions really quickly, like imagine what that would do. Well, I mean, I did imagine it. It's I mean, the problem with counterinsurgency that they learned over and over again is that the attempts to stop violence inflame inflame violence over and over again right and it's certainly i i have no reason to think that would not happen in the united states which is a you know with intense concepts of freedom really messianic impossible concepts of freedom uh you know in this in this in this space one thing you mention is that there are many elements of the armed forces that are kind of aligned with conservative belief uh and some of these um uh, are sympathetic to some of the the far right groups that it's not like if you lined up the armed forces, they're 
evenly split between different political ideologies. Uh, and, and I know there are different people that are concerned at various levels that uh, you would have a split among the armed forces themselves. You might have certain armed forces members who want to sit it out uh, or who have no interest in taking arms uh, against uh, their fellow Americans who they feel are standing up for what is right. Well, no one knows how any military would react, but um, I mean, I would say like, for example, in Arkansas in the fifties, when they had to send in the military and they, this, that's still other than 1992, the LA riots, that's still the foremost legal example of sending in us troops to into the U S you know, they did order Arkansas soldiers to barracks, right? Like they, they did not use them in the field. I mean, you know, we, we have a pretty good sense of the infiltration of uh, hard right militias into police forces, which is quite extensive and hugely troubling. But, you know, the, the stuff about the military is much weaker. Like that, that's not like they don't there. There's no, um, you know, there's the, the military times asked people, have you seen white power insignia? And there was a huge number of people who said that. And there are other evidence that there's obviously white power things in in the military but we we don't know how extensive they are the other thing is that the u the military oath um uh, unlike virtually every other u.s institution uh has held up incredibly well um like i think that like if that goes if the military oath goes and they don't follow command um the country really is over like uh you know like, like that that's that's the end but i i actually don't think that will fall um, I think the chain of command is so is so strong and the understanding of the oath in the military is at least from the people that I talk to. It's and also, you know, you could see this during the Trump years where even pro Trump generals and so on were, you know, basically not going to have any part of this nonsense um, like th that's I, I'm less worried about the military than I am about police forces, if I can put it that way. Interestingly enough. Americans trust the military more than they trust about just about any other institution. You know, like at, at this point, it's not like, oh, we love our political leaders. And it's like, oh, the, then the military is lower on the totem pole. Actually, the military is at the top of the food chain in terms of uh, American trust. The military is very worried about it. I mean, like the senior people I spoke to talked about a monopoly of trust. That's not what the military is supposed to do. The military is a tool that the civilian people are supposed to use. And that, like, they, they, they are not intended to be political um, animals. They're not intended to solve internal political. They're the worst possible people. To do, and they know it. They're, they're absolutely conscious of that, right? Like, the, the, the military does not exist to dictate anything about civilian power structures. In fact, it requires really strong civilian power structures to function, to do its basic functions. So, I mean, they're openly talking about what, what, what a horrible position they're being increasingly being put in um because like they yeah they are they are the only national institution that really has massive amounts of trust from the american people and that's that alone is a very very dangerous fact now military two like that's the that's the least likely scenario for america for me um like i think that's really marginal like it's not i mean nothing's impossible in this world but that's that's really highly unlikely because you have this military professional culture that makes them unlikely to, to try and usurp political control. They, for, they, I mean, they don't want the power for one thing, but also, you know, the number one the number one predictor of a coup is that you, you have a history of coups and America has no history of coups, 
right? It has a history of assassination that's extensive. It has a you know lengthy history of political violence. It has history of occupation. It has a history of civil war. But it, there there are not coups, right? This is the longest. This is the most enduring democracy ever, right? Um, so you know that that seems to me uh, pretty pretty unlikely. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Your book also includes a scenario around a president being assassinated. And there was a statistic that blew my mind that said something like one out of every 11 presidents has been assassinated and that yeah. assassination is something of a pattern in American life. Um, should have told me that before I ran for president, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure they told you right after, right? I mean, you know, like I'm sure the, the, the guys that came to protect you. Did you, you I mean, how, what was that like? Did you get, did you have your own security or did they come to you? Uh, so the, the way it works in politics is that you get Secret Service protection after you become the nominee of a major party, which I never did. I, um, right. So I fell short of getting Secret Service details. Um, right. There were various threats against me at different times and different law enforcement people uh, were notified. Um, so so there, there was some interaction with law enforcement trying to, to make sure I was safe. So some people just didn't like the idea of everyone having money. We're like, oh, that free money guy, get him. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to say, like, I had a friend who ran for older woman in Hudson Valley and she got death threats, right? Like, I mean, I- increasingly death threats are for, like, certainly as a journalist, like, you don't know how many have I gotten after publishing this book, at least half a dozen. Right. I mean, like, I mean, obviously, it's much more serious for you. It's like, like it's a real possibility. But but uh, but, you know, the normalization of of threats. It's one reason why a lot of Republican members of Congress were reluctant to impeach Trump uh, or right. to uh, to have a commission around January 6th because um, they got death threats. And they, you know, yeah. they looked at it and said, you know what? Like, is this that important to me? <laughs> is democracy like, oh. that important? I mean, Mike, I, I have so little sympathy for that, I must say. I mean, like, you know, I, when I, I think about my I have a little bit grand- more sympathy, Stephen, because, yeah. um, because when they, they go to their, you know, town hall or their airport or whatever, and then they, they have a crazy person screaming at them and whatnot, um, like, and, you know, threatening their family, they get like, you know, their dozen death threats. Like a, a lot of these members of Congress uh, are not properly protected, in my opinion. They have nothing. Right. They have nothing close to what you'd imagine as Secret Service protection, and and so they they back down. Um, I, I don't think it's right, 
Um, right. But I, I suppose I'm more sympathetic, um, maybe because um, I know some of the people involved who've either put up through it and walked through it and seen all of the fire they had to walk through. I mean, it, it just did not seem easy. I, I get that. Like, I, tr- I truly understand what you're talking about. But like, you know, my grandfather, like, had to fly in the back of a bomber and drop bombs over Hamburg for democracy. Like, pe- like the democracy has always required quite a bit of sacrifice from, from people. Like, it, like it, it, it seems like, and the stakes now, the stakes are real. The, the stakes are democracy in America, right? That's what, that is what is at play. I'm imagining what they're talking themselves into is like, look, these are my constituents. This is the way they feel. I'm elected to represent them. And if they, they think that, this was a legitimate political expression, uh, and not. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, I like. I, I'm. I'm just imagining that. That some of the, the. the I mean, kind of quit and get a regular job. Is that that? That's not the hardest thing in the world to me. Like that's not an unwarranted sacrifice for. Like like. Uh, you do have a ton of people retiring. I think I, the yes, last number yeah. I saw you. You know, you have uh, at this point, I believe, over 20 members of Congress who are saying wow. I'm out, and some yeah. of it is because of what we're talking about right now. And yeah, I and also see, know a host of people system. who were considering running for office who are like, I'm not going to run for office given the madness. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's part of the breakdown, right? I mean, when I talked about the complex cascading system, like it is exact that that's why crazy things keep happening. Cause it's like, well, the violence leads to, it's not necessarily what you see. It's what you don't see. It's like the people who don't run, the people who don't enter politics. The, and then that, beca- and then that feeds into bad decision-making, which leads to worse outcomes, which leads to more insanity. Right. Like that's how that's that that's how this feedback loop kind of works. Right. And it's yeah, it's like it's broken. Your, your book did make me think that that we've gone a while without an assassination. Well, Secret Service are amazing. Like I would not uh, like it would be it would be a, a total fluke if there were to be a, a presidential assassination. I mean, a lot of things would have to go wrong. Now, a lot of things do go wrong. Like, you know, like as in the book, it's not hard to imagine how it would happen. But, you know, the Secret Service are uh, the best. Like they are extremely, extremely good at what they do. I think like a like a a group, like if 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 a militia decided to send out an assassin to kill the president, they wouldn't have a chance, in in my opinion. Like they, they, they would have they would they would they would not be able to do that. It'd be more like stochastic terrorism, which is, you know, increasingly what they face and what they can't control at all because it's just rage. It's just random Internet generated rage and, and it, that per, that radicalizes itself and finds its own methods. And that that's, of course, who can predict that? Yeah. And that that's the scenario you play out in the book where there is yeah. an unlikely a series of events, but if you have a multitude of people big enough, then the unlikely event actually becomes much more uh, plausible and possible. If you had, like you're describing, uh, millions of Americans who'd been radicalized or enraged in, in a particular way. Uh, an- another scenario you play out in the book is climate change uh, and right. it, its effect on both our ability to sustain cities, like the city I'm sitting in right now, New York City, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Um, and crop yields and a bunch of other things. Um, and you played it out over a series of years. Uh, but that was very scary stuff. I couldn't sleep often when I was writing that. Yeah. And and, and it seemed, unfortunately, uh, very, very real and almost upon us. I mean, those are definitely, like, you know, I, I use the best available models for everything in this book. So 
but some are stronger than others, right? Like economic models are incredibly weak. Like they just don't, they don't, they don't hold up and they don't, they don't have falsifiability and they don't have a great track record. The environmental models are basically not pretty good. They're they're They, they are unbelievably reliable. Um, and then if, you know, and then, so the guy I'm talking to about New York, like he's a reinsurer. He's like a, he's like a, he's like a, the lead thinker of a reinsurance company. Trillion dollar bets are made, are placed on his opinion of this stuff. Right. And, um, and you know, you know, they're good if people are bidding hundreds of billions of dollars on the veracity of the model. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, there are two reinsurance events that they can't really reinsure for. One is massive hurricanes hitting New York and the other is a, a true devastation of Tokyo. Right. Like a, like a, like a, those are the ones where the size of the devastation, there's no, you can't hedge out. Like you can't, you can't, you essentially can't, uh, there's nowhere to, there's no market big enough to bet against that. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very terrifying because New York, unlike like, you know, Miami's a great town and Houston's a great town, like, but New York is New York, right? Like it is the center of the world and it has 88% of the world's foreign currency transactions take place through it. And information it is the the hub of global information networks at least for the west and you know it, it's extremely vulnerable um trump like the trump administration canceled the seawall uh which i find shocking um like not a lot of things shock me in this and then and so and so yeah and then the other guy was the um the guy about corn at the usda and like you know just a nice guy who wants to talk about corn and it's so scary like it's so scary talking to that guy about the future of food because, you know, our entire civilization is based on the cheap, abundant staple crops produced by the Midwest and the incredible innovative capacity of the American farmer, which is astonishing. And they, they're entering an innovation trap where they effectively don't know what to innovate to. And so, and, and that, that's, it's, it, and they don't know how to, they, they, the, the moisture variability is fluctuating in such a way that they can't, they can't plan, like they're, they're brilliant at planning, but they can't really plan around these high levels of variability at, at different stages of the, of the season. So yeah, the thinking about what it, what would life would be like if food were no longer cheap, really, really, really frightening. It was scary stuff. Um, yeah. One of the things that I found most helpful about this book is you did something I'd never seen before, which is you defined civil war uh, according to, I believe, the Oslo uh, Peace Institute's definition, which was a thousand people dying per year of political violence. Yeah, combatant deaths. Combatant deaths. And right now, America uh, has something like 25 to 50 such deaths um, on an annual basis, which would qualify us as uh what, what what was the the term it was like civil strife so civil strife uh is already here in the u.s and civil war would be if that went up something like 20 to 40 times is that correct yeah i mean you know these definitions are like i'm trying to like these are the best definitions i could find i'm not like i'm not 100 it's, it's the best I'm definition me. i've seen man because like, yeah. you see hyperbole around this all the time you're like oh yeah civil war i mean i i've used it myself i've been like is a civil war in the u.s a possibility right. and i've been saying yes for a while but i did not know that 
um, what qualifies it, uh, according to at least uh, experts, is a thousand combatant deaths in a given year. Yeah, I mean, there there, there are also problems with um, defining like what a combatant death is in this case. So, like, sure. I mean, first of all, the U.S. is so heterogeneous and so enormous that. Like the, the the question is, are these definitions super super meaningful? Uh, I mean, I think they are in a way because they show, okay, we're not at civil war yet; we're at civil strife. It's these numbers, but you know, like all the numbers of combatant deaths, like those are taken from journalists and like people at re- in research institutes, like. ADL and Southern Poverty Law Center who go through newspaper reports and then define them as as political violence um, because for the police and for the FBI that's not necessarily a meaningful category like when Jared Miller went in Vegas and shot two police officers and tight and put a note saying the revolution has started because he's a member of the sovereign citizen group for the police he's just a lunatic right and so like so it, it, like it's up to other people to define the nature of political violence. And that that's why, you know, some people even argue there is no political violence in the United States. Well, I mean, that seems impossible now. I mean, because we just saw Jan 6 and people died. So, I mean, that, that has to qualify. Well, I mean, does like it doesn't have to qualify like you could like you could define that in uh, any number of ways. You know, part of the like, part of the problem is the f- defining the line between criminality, um, mental illness and political extremism is blurry, you know, at the best of times. And, and in, certainly in other countries, it's, it's very, it's very, it's very difficult to see. But, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think, like, I think the point, we all know that political violence is growing and that you can see it. And like, as you say, January 6th, like, yeah, that's, that's political violence to me. Um, when a sovereign citizen kills some police officers because they don't think the federal authority re- is, is legitimate. That to me is political violence, even if they have a history of mental illness. Um, you know, but but there are, there are different. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are different ways of cutting it up. But the point I think really is that it's what we were talking about before is like people running for office feel threatened. Um, you know, people are going mobs are going to election officials to intimidate them. That's political violence. I mean, I, I just don't think there's any there's any way around saying that's what it is. And it's definitely on the rise. It, it is tough to differentiate in part because and I've been making this case where you have a society where a lot of people, let's say men in particular, are struggling with a loss of meaning, uh, a loss of purpose, structure, fulfillment, community. Uh, and then they fall prey to these toxic ideologies being like, hey, you know why your your life isn't going the way you want these people or these structures? And uh, they become radicalized, like the young man in your book, um, where, where he's at home and then he starts going down the internet rabbit hole. Um, and you end up finding meaning in ideas that at least have some political association. Um, a, a lot of it is tied together with the disintegration of uh, American men is one of the the points I'm making. And uh, I agree, it'd be tough to kind of draw a line between um, someone being mentally ill and someone being criminally violent and someone being politically motivated. Um, so it, in my mind, uh, if there's any hint of them Having a political purpose, I personally would throw them in that category um, be, because I think the factors are, are all tied together. Yeah, I mean, I don't like I, I try to tease them out in the book and separate them, but they're all of a piece, right? Like they're yeah. all yeah. They, they, it, 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 it's it's the dismal tide, as Cormac McCarthy put it. Like, um, you know, I mean, I would say that there's de- like I remember talking to a central banker. Well, 
you know, not the central banker, but an, a, one of the a, a banker in, in the United States. And we were talking about it and I was like, well, why doesn't this happen elsewhere? Like, why doesn't this happen in Europe? And why doesn't this happen in Canada? And so he was like, well, you don't, he said, you don't have an army of the dispossessed. You don't have 400 million firearms enough for every man, woman and child. Yeah. But he said, you know, there are a lot of people in America who have nothing. Like if you're in Canada and you have nothing, you still have health care and education. Wait, 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 this, this, Steven, this is a good national motto or slogan. In Canada, if you have nothing, you still have something. Come to Canada. Well, if you see a homeless guy on the street, and there's plenty of homeless in Toronto, but you know that that guy gets all the medical care that he gets the same medical care as you, right? Like that's a, that's a, that's a big difference, right? Like that's a big difference in, in, in what you it, it, and 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 of course, it creates a different relationship to the state, completely different relationship to solidarity in the state, right? But you know, I mean, the other thing is like to me, the dispossession is part of it. But you know, there's this really fascinating study out of India about um, political violence, and so what ha- the, the number one thing for political violence in India is when they they did it with the visa with 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 expenditure records. So as Muslims, the marginalized group get more money to spend compared to Hindus, that's when the violence starts, right? And th- th- and they, this can that's be so seen dark. everywhere. Well, exactly. Because like what's actually happening is in America, you have, you know, black people and, and Latino people moving up and you have economically, politically, America is about to become a majority minority country by 2040. And as that happens, the, the overclass essentially reacts with violence. And you, you can see that everywhere. You can see that in India. You can see it all over Africa. You can see it in Asia. You can see it in the Middle East, certainly. So, you know, that that is, to me, if you're asking what the deeper process is underway, the psychological process, that that would be right at the top of the list. In fact, when they, there's an amazing study that came out about the January 6th insurrectionists, and they own, like... Only a very about twenty percent of them were from the militias, but the the huge overwhelming factor was that they all came from counties where exactly that thing had happened, where exactly that phenomenon. I, I had saw happened. that where they, they came yeah. from counties that had been becoming more diverse uh, relatively recently. And you know it's amazing because it's not them becoming poor, right? It's it's not like it's not like them becoming it's not them losing. It's the people below them gaining in relation to them. That they that causes the violence, which is even worse. I mean, like is even darker. Yes. So when you've been talking the book, and you mentioned before that uh, a conservative actually framed it as like, "Is civil war so bad?" Which is a, a very very yeah. dark reaction. What was the reaction from the left? Um, and, and so here here's at least my thinking on it: is that yeah. when people talk about this civil war. Uh, we think that the active threat is from the far right, uh, which, by the way, I agree with. I mean, you know, that yeah. like, there are a number of reasons for this. And so um, I'm curious whether folks on the left uh, take this threat very, very seriously or are dismissive of it because they're kind of institutionalists. Yeah, well, I mean, you can probably speak to this. I know you can speak to this better than me because I don't understand why so many like the Chuck Schumers of this world and the Joe Bidens of this world are not like how there was any debate about the filibuster at all is just totally beyond me. Right. Like it's like this system is in like, but I think it, I mean, the only explanation I can come up for their political reaction is that they're so invested in these institutions that they can't really, they can't really accept them collapsing. And of course 
you know, as a foreigner, when you talk to Americans, they worship their institutions. They've been taught from childhood that this is the greatest political system in the history of the world. It's the answer to history, uh, you know, effectively. Like, who was it? Um, the guy with the big mustache who was the big hawk in the Iraq war. What was his name? I mean, he said what we should have done as Iraq is go in and throw in the Federalist Papers and say, figure it out. Right. And like and uh, just the assumption of um, the superiority of the American system above all, I think is extremely hard to shake, especially when you're 80. Right. Like like it's extremely hard to shake the shake it when you've lived your whole life in that legacy, you know, in that in, which is, of course, a very glorious legacy. I mean, I, I'm not denying that it isn't. It just happens to be broken. Right. Um so, you know, I think that's what, but, you know, you can probably answer that better than me. The people on the left that I've talked to, my experience has been they're starting to wake up that um, really basic things like democracy are at stake. And it's probably, you know, things like fighting over Dave Chappelle might have to be sidelined for a while. The struggle now is clearly over institutions and what they should look like rather than, you know, the kind of uh, cultural politics um, that have sort of dominated the left for you know, 10 years now. Well, if there is a wake up call, you're one of the people making it. Um, uh, and uh, I think one of the things that you may run into um, that uh, I can vouch for uh, is that at this point, many Democrats have become kind of the voices and the defenders of the fading establishment and the fading institutions. Right. And then the Republicans have been overtaken by this anti-institutionalist zeal um, and when you say something like, hey, you know, maybe these institutions are having problems, some Democrats take it as a partisan attack, which right. is certainly not the intent. It's like, hey, you know, I kind of want you to not screw up <laughs> or, or I want your stuff to work or I just want American society to work. Um, but but unfortunately, in a polarized environment, uh, you know, like they'll take anything that questions their prized institutions uh, as something that's partisan or political be because conservatives generally will take this narrative that you're saying and be like, Oh yeah. Like, Oh yeah, this is happening. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean the genre of civil war science fiction, that's all conservative, right? There's a, there's a vast genre of like imagine civil wars like Texas separating and sending F-15s to bomb, you know, Oklahoma. Like there's, there's like a whole genre of that all conservative. Right. Um, like, but I think the left, like, because I think because it's starting to stare them right in the face, you know, like Biden could not get his diplomats, you know, nominated for a year. Right. Like these are basic tasks of government, right? Ba very basic tasks of government, like guaranteeing your debt. Like they're playing, they're playing really dangerous games with, with, with national debt. It like, makes no for, sense. To anyone else it, like, it's outside bizarre. the country, they'd be like, this is totally bizarre. It's just bizarre. bizarre. It's like, it, it's like, why on earth would you do that? Uh, like, but also like, well, as we said before, there was no, nobody showed up at the USDA. Like nobody was minding the store. That's what scared me. Most, most Americans have no idea that that happened or didn't happen. Right. Well, but I think like, it's pretty clear it isn't working. Right. Like, you, you know, like, Amen. And it, you know, and, it, and I think increasingly when you, you know, like one of the things is that like Americans barely even talk about policy anymore. Right. Because like to talk about yeah. policy would be to imply that you have a government that could enact a policy. And I like there is no government that can enact a policy. So instead there's make America great again or socialism. Right. Which is which, you know, 
the, the meaning of socialism when it comes out of an American politician's mouth is unrelated to what socialism means anywhere else in the world. Oh, right? take it from like, me. I, I know what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> like completely. Well, I remember because the 2015 Canadian election had ended and I and I went to a Trump Sanders rally for the Guardian right to report the next day. And I left Canada and the Canadian elections are like, Sir, we need to spend $26.8 million on education. No, you're completely wrong. We need to increase that budget to $32.8 million. It's all numbers and boring and nobody watches. And it's just totally banal and boring because it's all policy. It's all like actual debates around policies, right? That, that's my kind over, of debate. <laughs> right. You feel right at home. I should move to know? Canada. <laughs> yeah, the, the forward party in Canada. See how it goes, you know? Um, but uh, like – you go to America and it's like God and socialism and there's no numbers. No one brings up any numbers because, you know, it would be, it would actually be meaningless to talk about numbers, you know, because what, like, look at Biden, he controls the Senate and the house and he still can't pass, you know, what in effect is a budget. Right. So like, I, I think people are starting to figure out that like the America's entered a post policy phase, essentially it has become ungovernable and that's, that's unsustainable. Well, uh, enjoyed your book a great deal. I think it's important that people understand that you can be talking about these matters like the next civil war and do it not from a conservative or uh, a liberal perspective, but just from a perspective of fact, reason, data and study. Uh, again, appreciate your work. Love the book. Um, and thank you so much, Stephen, for writing it and for sounding the alarm. Always great to talk to you, Andrew. 